you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. You will read verses 37 through 47. Hear now the Word of the Lord. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. But Father, we thank you for your word, even in passages such as this that are quite shocking when we understand the reality and gravity of them. We thank you for the truth that comes from our Savior's lips here. And we pray and ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see how this applies to us, that we would understand why this matters, why this confrontation is recorded in Holy Scripture for us, what we can learn here in this passage. Father, help us to be more like Christ. Help us to rejoice in the fact that we, through Him we can call you Father. Pray that you would reveal that to our hearts once again today in the pages of Scripture we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Well, today as we jump back into the Gospel of John, we have come to a passage of Scripture in which Christ disabuses us of a common but wrong idea about humanity. An idea that was much more pervasive in the 20th century for us as Americans than it is now, but it is still around. It still exists today. And that is that there exists neutrality when it comes to Christ. Neutrality is a myth. For many years in this country, we, we assumed some sort of neutral ground exists. By the existence of a so-called moral majority, as it were, there seemed to exist a large swath of people in our country who were not really all that serious about their religion or about Christ, but to the onlooking eyes, they weren't flagrantly against Him either. They weren't flagrantly evil. 
They weren't really for Christ and that they didn't live their lives for Christ, but they would never say that they were against him. They even might ascribe some kind of allegiance to him. They were just sort of neutral. Well, the reality is, Scripture makes it clear that that type of person or populace is a myth. Those people do not exist now, and they did not exist then, back when a so-called moral majority was around. In God's Word, in God's economy, there, there is no neutral ground. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. The truth is, there exist only two types of people in this world. Those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. Those are the only two options. There are no other options and there exists no neutral ground. There's no in-between. The question then is, who is who? And, and how do we know? Well, Jesus is going to make that pretty clear for us today in this passage. Now, this week we are continuing on in this back and forth between Jesus and the Jews. And the subject now shifts to a debate about lineage, about fatherhood. The Jews believe themselves to be the children of Abraham and thus the children of God. But Christ corrects them on both fronts. And he reveals to them who their true father really is. Again, as we have been seeing all through this section, the intensity of this conflict just keeps rising. And today it's going to be taken up a few notches. But basically, Jesus' entire point here can be boiled down to this. Who you really are, spiritually speaking, will be evidenced by your life. In other words, a tree is known by its fruit. And in this passage, we're going to see Jesus gives three main fruits that will be evident in the lives of those who are true children of God, but are clearly absent in the lives of his audience, of these Jews. While these Jews claim a pretty significant lineage, their true lineage that Jesus brings out and exposes to them is quite shocking, even to them, and it should be to us. And we need to understand this rightly. As, as we look at this, as, as outsiders to this conflict, I, I hope for a twofold effect here. For those of us who are truly in Christ, I hope that you will actually find that there is much comfort and assurance in His words here. We can know that we are truly the children of God by what Jesus brings to the table in this passage. But also, I want us to see and understand why neutrality did, does not exist. It's important that we understand this so that we don't see the world or our unsaved neighbors or friends through wrong lenses. To do so is to greatly diminish the urgency of the gospel in our own hearts and minds. We must see this rightly. So let's start working through this with the first fruit of evidence that Christ brings to the table. Starting in verse 37, 38, look what he says. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, 
and you do what you have heard from your father. So right off the bat here, Jesus acknowledges their prior claim that they are, in fact, the offspring of Abraham. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we we began this retort from the Jews that you see back in verse 33. Jesus had told them that those who abide in his word are truly his disciples, and, and it is those who will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Well, the very idea that they needed to be set free revealed their true colors. It it provoked them to appeal to their lineage and challenge Jesus' words. Look back at verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, as we looked at that, Jesus points them to the the source of their slavery, which was their sin, and to the only place where freedom from sin can be found, which is himself, the Son. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But for the Jews to understand this, Jesus has to keep pressing them. Because just as they objected, in the Jewish mind, true freedom is found in being a descendant of Abraham. As the Mishnah says, we read this a couple weeks ago, but even the poorest in Israel are looked upon as free men who have lost their possessions, for they are sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, to be the offspring of, of Abraham was not nothing at all. It was something. In fact, it was a significant privilege, which Jesus is conceding here. God gave a covenant promise to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation of Israel. He is the one whom God sovereignly chose to bless and promised to be God to him and to his offspring after him, which serves as the the foundation of all the unfolding covenants of Scripture, all pointing to the coming new covenant, the arrival of Christ who fulfills them all. Paul talked about this both in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 9. In Romans 3, he said, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then in Romans 9, he said, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoptions, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It was and is a significant thing to be a physical descendant of Abraham, which Jesus acknowledges here. But then he contrasts that with their present actions. Look back at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So even though some of these Jews may have had some momentary sparks of belief that we saw earlier in the passage that that maybe this is the Messiah, Jesus once again shows that he knows their hearts. He knows that his word found no permanent residing in him. There is no abiding here. They were not abiding in the truth of of what he said or who he is. And because he confronted their, their religious posterity, and revealed their slavery to sin, they again are ready to kill him. And there's a reason for that. Rooted in who they truly are, spiritually speaking. 
And Jesus begins to draw that out here in verse 38. In subtle form, he tells them both of the source of his words that they were rejecting and the source of their own actions that they were desiring to carry out. There is another lineage here at play. Look what he said. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, this is, this is Jesus' main point, and this is what he's going to flesh out and explain for the next nine verses. Both he and the Jews were displaying by their words and actions the truth of who their fathers really are. But clearly, at, at this point, the Jews did not understand what he was saying, and they again appeal to Abraham. But this time with a little bit different language. Look what they said in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Now, notice, Jesus was happy to concede in verse 37, they are the offspring of Abraham. That Greek word for offspring is actually the word sperma, and it speaks of one's physical lineage. Literally, it means seed. We are the seed of Abraham, is what they said. Jesus is happy to concede that on a physical level. Yeah, you're the, you're the seed of Abraham. That's true. But now the language is different. It has shifted. And he will not concede this claim. He will not go with them here. Abraham is our father is a different claim. Look how Christ responds. Jesus says to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Now, he still doesn't tell them explicitly who he's alluding to, who their true father is. That's, that's coming. But he fundamentally denies that they are Abraham's children. Why? Why is he happy to concede that they are his seed, his lineage, but not his children? What's the difference? Well, to be his children is to claim a couple of things. First, it would be a claim on inheritance rights. For Abraham's children, that would be the spiritual inheritance of what God promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, an everlasting possession of the promised land, and that God would be God to him and to his descendants forever. To be the true children of Abraham is to inherit those promises from God to Abraham. But secondly, a claim to be his children is a claim to be like him, to be following in his ways. As the old saying goes, like father, like son, or an apple does not fall far from the tree. When Jesus implies that their actions are indicative of who their father is, they are quick to say, well, Abraham is our father, meaning they believe themselves to be like him. Well, both of those things are true. To have Abraham as your father is to have a claim on the promises given to him by God in the Abrahamic covenant. That's absolutely true. And it is also a claim to be like him, to walk as Abraham walked. The problem for the Jews is it wasn't true for them. And that's evident in what they were doing and in what they were desiring. They were seeking to kill Christ. As Jesus said, that's that's not what Abraham did. The question is, well, what did Abraham do? 
What are the works that Abraham did that Christ speaks of? Well, when God appeared to Abraham and gave him the promises, the Bible tells us in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's entire life after God came to him was marked by faith. Faith is the first fruit of a true child of God. And Abraham was a man who lived by faith, expressed everywhere in his life, leaving his homeland, trusting in the promise of a coming son, being willing to sacrifice that son, all upon God's word to him. All of it was a fruit of faith in his life, of trust in God. This is why Abraham is called the man of faith or the father of faith. Those who walk by faith are walking in the ways of Abraham. And Paul talks about this extensively in two entire chapters, in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. Romans 4, Paul says this in verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith is counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is, this is where we get the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Like Abraham... We are not justified, we're we're not made right with God by our works, but rather through our faith, by trusting in God and what He has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. That being the case, the, the question then becomes, who are the true children of Abraham? If the if it's not the Jews, then who are they? Well, Scripture answers this. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then he says in verse 21, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, the true children are Abraham, are those who do what Abraham did. They walk by faith. They believe God. They trust in who he is and what he has done. And who God is and what he has done has been supremely revealed to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Trusting in Christ by faith makes you a true offspring of Abraham and an heir of his promises. This is part of what the new heavens and the new earth will be, a fulfillment of the everlasting land promises given to Abraham. And the recipients will be all of those who have Abraham as their father by faith. All of those in Christ, both Jew and Gentile in Christ, receive those promises. But those who reject Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are not Abraham's true children. No matter their lineage, they will not inherit his promises. 
And that's what Jesus is making clear to these Jews. Your physical lineage does not earn you this right. It only comes by grace through faith. And the true children of God walk by faith. Now the Jews are obviously angered by this as Jesus denies their Abrahamic posterity and continues to insist that they are working the works of their father, still leaving it open as to who that is exactly. But now they respond with an even greater claim. And Jesus is, is going to respond and point them to the second missing fruit in their lives. Look what they said, verse 41. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. You know, the tone is, the tone is rising here. You know, things are, are heating up. When the Jews say that they're not born of, of sexual immorality, they're, they're combating Jesus' claim that they are followers of some father who is not Abraham. They're saying we are not illegitimate children. We, we know our heritage. We know our birthright. We know our lineage. But also, I think within this, is a subtle shot at Jesus. Because while they are doubling down on their own legitimacy, they may also be saying, unlike you, Jesus, we are not born of sexual immorality. See, the circumstances of his birth were not unknown. And the conclusion widely drawn was that Mary was a fornicator and that Jesus was a product of sexual immorality. And in this culture, to question one's paternity, his, his origins, is to question his legitimacy. And you can just see the hardening of their hearts toward him as this thing moves on. But then in their own defense, they appeal to the greatest possible heritage that one could have, and that is that they are children of God, that it is God himself who is their father. And again, they believe this to be rooted in their national identity. In their view, to be a child of Abraham is to be a child of God. God declared himself to be the, the father of Israel. We are the line of Israel, therefore God is our father. So goes the logic. But Jesus responds, and he addresses both of these statements, both the sexual immorality and the claim to have God as their father. And he gets a lot more clear now. Look what he says, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. You know, contrary to the popular assumption among the Jews... Christ was not a product of sexual immorality. His origins do not even begin with Mary. And he skips that whole thing. He does not talk about the prophesied virgin birth. He just goes straight to his origins, that he comes from God. And notice how clear he is on who his father is at this point. In all the verses leading up to this, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, Christ is repeatedly spoken of his Father. He's speaking of having been sent by the Father, his coming from the Father, his operating with the Father's authorities, his speaking the Father's words, his executing the Father's judgment, and his coming return back to the Father who sent him. But now he makes it even more clear who that Father is. The Father he speaks of is God the Father. God has sent him. His words are God's words. His authority is God's authority. And his origins are with God. Now, of course, we as the readers already know this. 
We are apprised of this from the very first sentence of this book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus' origins are with the Father from eternity past, meaning His Sonship is unique. He and the Father are one. His Sonship is of natural and eternal generation. He is the only begotten Son. He is the Son of God, and He is God the Son. And for that reason... He is the beloved of the Father. He is the beloved of God. A fact that is repeatedly emphasized all over Scripture and is supremely important. We've seen this in John. John 5.20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father bore witness to this Himself, both at the baptism of Jesus and at the Mount of Transfiguration, when His voice split the sky and said, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Isaiah foreshadowed this and prophesied about this in Isaiah chapter 42, when he said, God said, Behold My servant whom I uphold, My chosen in whom My soul delights. I have put My Spirit upon Him. He will bring justice forth through the nations. See, God loves His Son chiefly above everything and anything else. And the same principle that is applied to Abraham is now applied to God. If God is your Father, you would act like your Father. Like Father, like Son. And if that is the case, you would love what the Father loves. And God loves above everything else His Son. And those who are born of God, who are truly His children, will likewise love His Son above everything else. This is why we cannot be content to hold Christianity to be a mere affirmation of facts with no actual change of the affections. Rather, Christianity is a transformation of the heart that reorients one's affections toward the Son. Love for the Son, love for Jesus, is the fruit of having been born of God because His children love what He loves. Peter makes this really clear in his first epistle. 1 Peter 1, he opens like this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then a few verses later, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's that's not an imperative. That was not a command. He's not telling His readers to love Christ. He's just declaring a fact. It's an indicative. For those who have been born again, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Your love for Christ is a product of God's work in your heart, in your identity as His true children. God's children love what their Father loves, and above everything else, like their Father, they love the Son. They love Christ. Those who do not love the Son do not know the Father, and they are not His children. Not only faith, but love must be evident in the true children of God. That is obviously not what is on display in the hearts of 
these Jews. What was in their hearts was the exact opposite. It was murderous hatred. And for that reason, Jesus explains to them where this comes from. There's, there's, there's a source for this murderous hatred. And he's going to show them why they don't see the truth that is right before them as he points to this last missing fruit in their lives. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Some pretty shocking language from Jesus, especially when considering who he's talking to. Jesus is not talking to the pagans of the Roman Empire. Jesus is not talking to those who serve Baal. Jesus is not talking to the sons of Moloch. He's not talking to self-ascribed Satanists or atheists or anything of that sort either. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to the chosen nation of Israel. He's talking to those whose proclaimed allegiances to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is talking to those who have based their entire lives around the law of God. And yet he tells them, you are of your father the devil? And your will is to do your father's desires? Strong language. But Christ never exaggerates. Christ never overspeaks. Christ never says too much. Yeah, the Jews ascribed allegiance was to Yahweh, but the reality of their hearts was the exact opposite. Even unbeknownst to them, they were truly agents of Satan himself. And this truth is nowhere more clear and on display than in their desire to kill Christ, to murder the Lord of glory. This is truly antichrist in every sense of the word. And that's, that's who Satan is. He is antichrist. He is evil in its purest form. He is the father and originator of all evil in this world. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. It's a reference to the garden. What happened in the garden can rightly be described as a murder. As the deception of Satan led to the spiritual death of not only Adam and Eve, but the entire human race. And how did he achieve that? How did he murder them? By lies. By breathing out lies. As Christ said, he was speaking according to his own character, his own nature. When he speaks, he is always lying because lying is his native tongue. He is the father of lies. In the garden, God told Adam that you can eat of every tree except one. And in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall surely die. Satan came to Eve and said, you shall not surely die. And upon that lie she ate, and then he ate, and they died, and all of us with them. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
He is the exact opposite of Christ. Christ is the giver of life. He is literally truth incarnate. He is the truth. He only ever speaks the truth. Satan is a murderer. He is a taker of life, and he is the father of lives, and he only ever speaks lies. And the desire of the Jews to murder the Christ was and only could be satanic in origin. It was simply a carrying out of their true father's desires. It was Satan's desire manifesting in the children of Israel. Whether they realized it or not, they were truly followers of Satan in every way. He was and is, is their father. But that's not just true for Christ rejecting Jews. That's true for the whole world. And it was true for you before Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All whether Jew or Gentile, outside of Christ, are followers of Satan. There is no neutral ground. You may be prone to think of followers of Satan as self-described Satanist, as those who clothe themselves in all black and wear pentagrams on their shirts and worship the devil, but the reality is all people who have not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ are following Satan actively. We may think, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. My neighbor may not be following Christ, but he is a good guy. He would give you the, the shirt off his back. He works hard. He's a family man. He even has conservative values. Am I supposed to believe that he's a follower of Satan? Yes. There is no neutrality. In this world, you are either for Christ or you are against Him. There's no middle ground. And the supreme proof of that is not your moral neighbor, it's the Jews. Because this is a group of people who built their entire lives around following the law of God. If anyone was moral, surely it is those who were following divine law. But the reality is, all morality divorced from faith is a satanic enterprise. You can have a desire to do good. You can have a desire to do right. You can even have a desire to obey the law of God. But if that desire is not rooted in faith and trust in who God is and what He has done, then it is an evil desire. Because at the end of the day, It is a desire to establish your own righteousness apart from God. Which is exactly what the Jews were doing. Paul deals with this extensively in Romans. Romans 9.30 What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And then just a few verses later, Paul says, For I bear them witnesses that they, the Jews, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Which, as he said, of course, is the righteousness that comes by faith. See, the reality is, Christless Judaism is a satanic religion. Christ in Revelation even calls them the synagogue of Satan. But so too is conservative moralism. Christless moralism, Christless conservatism is satanic in nature. We want to to look at all the outrageous expressions on the left of the evil that's going on over there. Transgender story hour. And we want to say, that's truly satanic. Well, no question, it absolutely is. But the reality is, anything that rejects Christ is satanic. This is His world. This world was created by Him and for Him. Everything that does not acknowledge the Lordship of Christ is anti-Christ by definition. And the truth is, the things that are most deceiving are those that come the closest to the truth and still fall short. The devil is far more active in religion than he needs to be with those who have been given over to the depravity of their minds. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, ministers of righteousness. Some of the most effective people for the kingdom of darkness have Bibles in hand, twisting the word of God to their own destruction, as did these Jews. And Jesus is revealing who they truly are, those who are not standing in the truth, but rather in the lies of their father, the devil. And because they stand in lies, look at what he says in verse 45. He says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Notice that's not a concessive, meaning Jesus does not say, I'm telling you the truth, yet you do not believe me. No, it's causal. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The very reason they didn't believe is because he told them the truth. If he had been there telling them lies according to their own desires, they would have readily believed him. Because those who follow the father of lies will accept lies as truth and reject truth as lies. And you see this all over the world today in an infinite number of forms. Fallen humanity would rather believe anything and everything except the truth. To test this, go, go tell your moral neighbor the truth that they have sinned against a holy God, and that they will face His wrath unless they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Things will get more clear for you at that point. Neutrality does not exist. But Jesus finishes this point by giving the final reason for all of this. Look at verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? 
Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Those are sobering final words. Now, Jesus' first question there is meant to point once again to who he is as the sinless Son of God. For if he was a sinner like them, like us, then everything he said comes into question. But he's not. In fact, his character was so impeccable that even his enemies could not legitimately come up with something to charge against him. And that's what he's asking. Which one of you can actually prove that I have sinned? Now, back in chapter 5, he was falsely accused of breaking the Sabbath, but he dealt with that accusation in the beginning of this section in chapter 7. And now he's demonstrating that no one can truly convict him of anything, pointing to the fact that he is the sinless Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God who ought to be listened to. But then notice what he does here. He poses a second question, and he answers his own question again. He says, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Now think about that. He directly just declared that his words are not only absolute truth, but they are in fact the words of God. And thus the final fruit missing in the lives of his audience is the ability to hear and to believe the truth. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And the truth he is speaking of primarily is the truth of, of who he is and why he came. As God in the flesh, the Son who has come to set sinners free and to grant eternal life to all who believe. He is the light of the world, the waters of salvation, the bread of life. This is what he's been preaching all along. He's talking about the gospel. And yet he says that the only ones who will see and understand and believe the truth of the gospel are those who are of God, meaning those who belong to God. And those who are not of God, those who do not belong to God, will not hear and will not believe. How are we to understand this? Because Christ is clearly saying that there is a sense of belonging to God that is a prerequisite to hearing and believing the truth of God. How can you belong to God before you hear the truth of God? Well, Jesus is speaking the same truth that this gospel has been revealing all along. I, I honestly don't understand how anyone can get through the gospel of John without affirming the doctrines of grace. Because they're just, they're just everywhere. But to belong to God, to be of God, means that you are a product of sovereign grace and nothing else. It means that you have been elected from before the foundation of the world through not any merit of your own, but only by the sovereign mercy of God. It is through this sovereign mercy that the Father has claimed and elect people as His own to display His grace. And He gave that people to His Son. Jesus already spoke of this back in chapter 6 when He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Prior to his coming, God had already given him a particular people. 
This is why Jesus went on to say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Those who have come to Christ have been taught by God, by the Father. They've learned from the Father who the Son truly is. In fact, Paul can explain this better than I can in 2 Corinthians He says, 2 Corinthians 4, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. But... God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sovereign mercy, sovereign grace. For those who God has chosen by His grace, He works in their heart in such a way to open their eyes, to open their ears, to see and hear the truth of who Christ is, causing them to come to Him in faith. And everyone who comes to Him in true saving faith is showing that they have been born of God, chosen by grace. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that there is only one children of God. There is only one people of God. And they are made up of elect Jews and elect Gentiles, vessels of mercy chosen by grace. And those who are in that category are those who imitate their fathers, plural. They imitate their spiritual father, Abraham, as they live by faith and walk by faith. And they imitate their heavenly father, who is God himself, in his love for the Son. And all of this is evidenced by the ability to see and understand and believe the beauty of the gospel. If those things are true of you, then you can rest assured that you are counted among that number, that God has put his sovereign mercy and grace upon you. And through Christ, you are, in fact, a child of God, adopted into the family to experience the eternality of his grace forever to come. You can rest in that. But lest we forget that all of us prior to Christ were followers of Satan, in enemies of God, just like our unbelieving friends and neighbors. And the means by which God opens eyes is the preaching of the gospel, is the proclamation of the gospel, is the truth that Christ died for his enemies to grant eternal life and forgiveness to any and all who will believe upon his name. Every sinner, whether morally upright or flagrantly evil, needs that message. And we are to give ourselves to proclaiming His excellencies in this very dark world. So church, go forth. Go forth and proclaim the gospel in a world where there is no neutrality, knowing the results are not up to you, but they are in the hands of a sovereign and all-merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereign mercy.
Apart from it, none of us would stand. If you were to count our transgressions, no one could stand. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Thank you that we've been adopted into your family. Thank you that you love us as your own children now because of your son, because of what he's done. Lord, I pray for courage for all of us, that we would have the courage to speak the truth to our neighbors, to our friends, to a lost and dying world, that we would go forth and talk about Christ, that we would talk about the need for forgiveness of sin, just as Christ has done here, willingness to talk about one's slavery to sin and point to himself. Give us the same courage to follow in the footsteps of our Savior and point others to him. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.